Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Have you ever tried to lift yourself up by your bootstraps? Well, please don't. You can't. You'll just end up hurting yourself, falling flat on your face. Or elsewhere. According to a website called Useless Etymology, which apparently is not all that useless, the phrase pull yourself up by your bootstraps, originated shortly before the turn of the 20th century. It's attributed to a late 1800s physics school book that contained the example question, why cannot a man lift himself by pulling up on his bootstraps? Because that's the way the people used to phrase things. The expression pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was understood to mean attempting to do something absurd, until roughly the 1920s, at which point it started to evolve toward the current understanding, which is to do something without any outside help. But to what extent can we do, well, anything without the help of others? I mean, none of us live on an isolated island and then inside of a vacuum on that island. And if you did, somebody would have had to have made that vacuum or taught you how to build one. And how did you get to that island all by yourself in the first place? Even if you were immaculately conceived, others were involved in bringing you into this world. The self-made myth is just that, a myth. Nobody is self-made. However, many believe that we are the result of nothing other than our own choices, that we are all innately born with equal opportunity. And it's just a matter of our choices and what choices we make ourselves and nothing else that leads to all of our life's outcomes. In this absurd thinking, all of the outside forces that surround us have absolutely no impact on what we become or whatever success or failure we may have. Today's guest argues that's just simply not the case, that belief, in fact, is the worst of the American dream, turning it into a nightmare where the poor are denigrated, shamed, and bullied. In our current age of crises ranging from capitalism, I'm sorry, from climate change to the pandemic to what our guest calls shock capitalism and everything in between, what we need isn't this self-destructive individualism, but a stronger interdependence when we recognize how everybody else affects our daily lives. In a few minutes, we will have the return of Alyssa Court, author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which supports quality journalism about inequality and poverty in America. The project was founded by the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich, who appeared on our show several times. You can find those interviews right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on Ehrenreich, but don't do it right now because we're about to interview Alyssa. You can find out more, or you can follow the project, on Twitter, at EconHardship. 
can find out more about them at economichardship.org. Alyssa's earlier books include 2003's Branded, The Buying and Selling of Teenagers, the 2007 book Hot House Kids, The Dilemma of the Gifted Child, Republic of Outsiders, The Power of Amateurs, Dreamers, and Bootstraps from 2013, and her most recent book prior to Bootstrap, 2018's Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. She's also the author of a couple of books of poetry, Thoughts and Prayers, as well as another, Monetized. She was executive producer of the film Jackson, which won an Emmy for Best Documentary Social Issue. The film recounts how the radical pro-life movement pressures and recruits low-income pregnant women and keeps them mired in poverty. She was on our show back in November of 2014 when we talked about her book, Republic of Outsiders. You can follow Alyssa on Twitter at ListQuart, and you can find out more about Alyssa at AlyssaQuart.com. Thanks to listener Lisa P. for telling us she wanted to hear Alyssa on the show to discuss Bootstrap. And thanks to past guest Ann Newman for seconding Lisa's support. Ann was on the show back in early March to talk about her Baffler Magazine article, Hydropower, a dam on the Nile, Royals, Democratic Relations in the Horn of Africa. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you, sir? How was your weekend? Uh, my weekend was great. Lots of playoff basketball. Um, NBA is in full playoff swing, and uh, that kind of swallowed up swallowed your time. Swallowed up my time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I was just telling somebody this weekend, um, during office hours, our weekly meet and greet, and then over the weekend while I was hanging out over here at the bar, uh, how much better sports are when it's in the playoff season. Oh, I, it's it's night and day. I different. cannot watch uh, NBA basketball, NHL hockey. I cannot watch those sports whatsoever until it gets to the playoffs. Like, there's no need to watch whatsoever. Right. I mean, and, and I understand why it rolls that way in the regular season. It's a long season, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the biggest factor is staying healthy for the playoffs. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's unbelievable watching these players work at that level. You can kind of see it sometimes in international competition like the Olympics or like in Champions League in soccer or something like that. But totally. Yeah, the regular season is just a waste of time. All it's about is selling commercial <laughs> commercial time. That's all it seems to be about. Yeah, Players Union wants a shorter season. so Yeah, so do that. I. Yep. <laughs> Everybody does, okay? So the weekend before you have visitors from out of town, there's the exhaustion you get from making your home presentable. Then there's the weekend they are actually visiting, which is a blast, but again, exhausting. Then there's the weekend when you yourself are doing the visiting, which is also exhausting. And after a weekend preparing for a guest, followed by a weekend hosting a guest, which is now going to be followed up by a weekend where we are the visitors, and all of a sudden I cannot wait for that mythical weekend when there's absolutely nothing to do. I cannot wait for that. I'm looking forward to it, but more important than my quest for the mythical weekend when you can actually relax. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? <laughs> what's a disaster that will make you happier 
than Elon Musk's rocket exploding. I saw this analysis this weekend where they said it doesn't matter if it blows up or not. None of this makes any difference as long as he keeps getting investors and people think, well, at least he got that rocket off the ground. He'll get more investors. He'll make more money. And so this isn't a failure whatsoever. This is a huge success. And then I saw another analysis where they said, yeah, that was the whole goal of this. It didn't, even if it was, even if it blew up, it didn't matter because they just wanted to see if they could get it off the ground. And that's really disappointing when a disaster that you are enjoying, you can't enjoy as much the schadenfreude can't come through all the way that you want it to. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it at us, uh, at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from from contributor Jeff Dorchin, and we'll find out what that moment of truth is about later on today's show. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Tacos de Guisado. KERAFM News for North Radio posted an article with the headline, These Tacos Are the perfect hangover cure. Well, there you go, Chuck. Um, <laughs> the story states, after a night of libations, there's definitely a food that many people gravitate towards. Tacos. Jose Relat, a taco editor from the Texas Monthly. I love that they have a taco editor. That's <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great, too. Uh, said he recently visited Lubbock Taqueria, um, Jimenez Tortieri, tor- Tortieria in- y Taqueria. Uh, man, my Spanish is rusty. Um, that will take uh, the edge off of a hangover. Rolat is quoted in saying, they always have had great guisados, uh, which are substantial, slow-cooked, homey dishes that are really the backbone of breakfast. What's special about this place is that they go crazy with it, and part of it is inspired by one of the sons' love of partying. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, laying it all out there. Exactly. Rolot explains that the perfect hangover food has to be hearty and fatty and, quote, preferably messy because you need to reactivate all of your faculties. <laughs> Guisado literally means a dish or filling. You can eat it without a tortilla, but tacos de guisado or guisado have guisados in tortillas. That being said, if you're going to eat a guisado, uh, there will be tortillas. <laughs> so the inclination is to automatically make a taco. Yeah, there's a piece of bread sitting next to it. Yeah, yeah I'm going to stick the thing in the bread. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean. <clears throat> kind of straightforward. Kind of straightforward. <laughs> it's uh, like avoiding eating pudding with your hands. Exactly. Uh, according to the cooking website, uh, kiwilimon.com, uh, tacos de guisado include a wide variety of delicious stews that are classic in Mexican cuisine, including chicken tinga, chicharron and green sauce, creamy poblano chile strips, and chorizo hatch. That makes this week's hangover cure tacos de guisado. We got an email from Lee G who writes to give us a guest suggestion. He suggests that we interview Christopher Ketchum, the Intercept's uh, reporter, also a freelance reporter, examining the futility of green growth without shedding demand and delusions of sustained economic growth. Lee then sends a link to Christopher's April 4th article, Green Tinted Glasses, 
Absent from most public and policy conversations is any acknowledgement of the possibility that renewable energy cannot power a high-consumption civilization. This series will explore mounting evidence that a major downshift in consumption is looming and explore the implications of this energy realism for human progress and flourishing. Now, Christopher's been on the show several times in the past. He was on most recently back in January when we spoke with him about his article, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. You can find that interview at thisishell.com when you search on Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-A-M, and it is free. We also got an email from a listener by the name of Will, just like producer Will Ippen, and we'll be sharing that following our guest. You too can email us at chuckatthisishell.com with whatever you want to share with us, and if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. If we end up having your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally, as we did with Lisa and Anne today, who both requested that we have Alyssa on today's program. Coming up, Bootstrapping America, Will shares your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also coming up, historian Dr. Sebastian Vuger offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb explores the Comstock law, what the Comstock laws are, and why a bunch of 19th century obscenity laws almost came back to outlaw abortion medication in 2023. That's crazy. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell and what we seem to have lost is the value of working together how our success is not only our success but also the success of all the people who have helped us along the way and our failures are often the outcome of outside forces that we have no control over we've lost our understanding of the inherent value of living in a society that is if we ever had that sense here in the united states to begin with here to help us have a better understanding of the futility and destructive nature of bootstrapping returning to this is hell is Alyssa court author of bootstrapped liberating ourselves from the american dream welcome back to this is hell Alyssa. oh hi nice to be here it's great to have you on the show you write that i receive messages on a routine basis from strangers about how the poor are responsible for their own poverty those who are economically on the edge they write just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps why don't people recognize the absurdity of that phrase what does it say or reveal to you about the argument that you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps when we don't recognize the absurdity of the phrase well, it's I, writing this book, I came ac- across a lot of phrases that are all sort of like this, you know, the Horatio Alger myth, the Horatio Alger story, self-made man, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They all had uh, falsehoods and misunderstandings at the center of them. And I think part of why there's this misunderstanding is the actual aspiration to do this is impossible, right? It, most people cannot literally lift themselves up by their bootstraps because you, you'd be skiing, flipping over, you'd be Simone Biles, like if you're physically trying to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're trying to be self-made, you'd have to have come from 
no human um, and have driven on no roads and have no parents and no schools. Uh, so that falsehood is exposed by how ridiculous these idioms are. And you point out that uh, you mentioned how this is all grounded, as you were saying, in the Horatio Alger myth. And you write that Dick or Richard Hunter is the protagonist of Ragged Dick, the most famous novel by the 19th century author Horatio Alger Jr., whose oeuvre, uh, quite fictions of young men uh, r- rising rapidly in the ranks, gave rise to the, the idiom of the Horatio Alger story. These penniless boys and men who make it up the ladder of American commerce do so through pluck and hard work if we distract it or abstract it any further. Horatio Alger's story is an idea of American life that starts with indigence and ends up in affluence. More than a hundred years after his death, the phrase is still much well-known shorthand for the self-made myth that the documentary filmmaker uh, Michael Moore said that Americans are on a Horatio Alger fantasy drug. Why is that view so popular? Why do we want to believe that anybody and everybody has the same access to opportunity to a rags to rich riches story? Why do we want to believe that story? I mean, I think there's deep-seated reasons in American identity uh, why people believe this. You know, pioneers, uh, whatever revolution, <laughs> the British, you know. Uh, this idea of the West, right? There's plenty of reasons why Americans particularly want this. And then there's some uh, pretty dark reasons why Americans want this. I mean, we were completely dependent on enslaved labor as as a country. We appropriated, stole land from indigenous people. Like the, at, the, at the root of the self-made myth is a sort of denial of all the, the ways in which we've been radically dependent as a people you know, probably more than many other countries, right? And the fact that the self-made man was coined by a representative of a slave state, Kentucky, is not a coincidence in my mind. I mean, you have this incredible entrepreneurship and burgeoning economy in the 1830s when both pull yourself up by your bootstraps and self-made man were coined. And at the same time, you have an economy that's very dependent on the unpaid work of those who are enslaved uh, and other kinds of indentured servants and people who, you know, child labor, all kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of denial in the myth that is inherent in the making of our country. Do you think that's also wrapped up then in the myths of American exceptionalism and American innocence? Is this all part of one larger denialism about our history and where this country came from? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of denialism. And I also think there's there are sort of, I don't want to say essential, but there's kind of a habit of mind that not just Americans, but people in general get into, where they blame people for being vulnerable or victimized. And they do that to in the hopes that they can protect themselves so that they can stay afloat. Like you can see really clearly when people are sick, right? They're like, oh, what did they do to get sick, right? There's this whole kind of woo-woo thing, but that's also serving a protective function for the healthy, right? Oh, that person was, you know, that person smoked or that person, you know, lived an X or Y life and that's why they're sick, right? And I think we do that with economic injustice too. Like this person didn't work hard enough. This person, um, 
you know, went into debt to pay for their education, or they didn't get educated enough, or they didn't own their home. And then, then we can feel like we're protected. I mean, I, I, I'm not part of this group, but people who do this can feel that they are then protected. And that is sort of human nature, but it's also sort of American, you know, and it's definitely constructed, whatever it is, because it's like part of this way that people um, in a very uncertain country where people don't have a lot of protections that they can protect themselves. That not a lot of protections, but they can protect themselves. So this is all driven by a sense of fear, whether that fear is themselves becoming impoverished or the fear of death when it comes to uh, health choices. How much do you think this fear is a bipartisan fear? Is there, uh, you know, this kind of opposition to the poor? Does it cross party lines? Well, you know, I write about the ways in which many of the Trump supporters, I spoke to a number of Trump supporters who believed he was self-made because I was trying to understand how on earth <laughs> the self-made myth had stuck to Trump of all people, right? Who inherited millions and, you know, well, I guess he is a billionaire and is, you know, criminal and, you know, not paying his taxes. How is this person a self-made man? And th that myth is really important to a lot of Republicans. And that's part of why he keeps Trump has said he's self-made and his father is a Horatio Alger story. He said this. And um, 2020 Pew study, they found that, um, you know, something like 42% of Republicans who are poor are that way because they have not worked as hard as others. That's what the Republicans said. And then 60% of Republicans agreed with the statement, people get stuck in poverty because they make bad decisions or lack the ambition to do better in life. So it is kind of a Republican thing, that kind of blaming. But I don't think that Democrats get off scot-free in this either. I mean, we can see throughout the recent history of Democrats, there's a lot of um, this, you know, defunding of welfare programs and other programs that would, in effect, do this. You know, workfare. Remember, Clinton had workfare. You know, like let's make them work for the money, right? Make them worth the money, um, the aid. And then, you know, I think we also blue state folks. Uh, or people who consider themselves liberal believe in this kind of self-actualization, which is in a way a kind of bootstrapping. It's just like a more subtle kind. It's not, oh, I, I've saved all my pennies. I can drive a truck and that person shouldn't be on welfare. It's, you know, if we were just more mindful and just more self-actualized, we'd all be okay. And that that doesn't, to me, that I kind of go after the corporate mindfulness people as well, because I feel like they are also putting the blame back on individuals who haven't made it. But instead of saying you haven't made it because you're lazy, they're saying you haven't made it because you're not mindful. <laughs> it's like a different, it's a different matrix, but it's a similar impulse, you know? And so that hyper-individualism that we see in what people refer to the stage of capitalism as neoliberalism, does that hyper-individualism then lead to uh, feeling even worse about the poor? Does our current uh, situation, our current uh, system with neoliberalism lead us to hate the poor more than we may have before 1978? I mean, I think it, it definitely has. I mean, you can look at these these opinion polls and you can look at the kind of policies that that you know voters seem to be signing on for and there's you know a lot like we then again we'd have to go back to before Reagan to find uh, a time in which people did get more support you know the great society kind of programs 
that are still in place sometimes, but very, you know, but with a lot of checks and balances. So I think that is something to consider. We also have seen our unions gutted, although paradoxically, there's a wave of, you know, union feeling among people who hadn't previously been unionized. So I think, I mean, I, I write in my book, there are reasons to be cheerful, as it were. It's like there are these splashes of optimistic moments and things that are going on. And we can look at those as well in this conversation, I guess. But um, yeah, so the a lot of the feeling about the the poor has gotten more otherizing, like, you know, um, look at those people, they're, you know, they're, they're less uh, of interest, I think, to a lot of centrist Democrats than they might have been in the, in the past as well. How much do you think our understanding of po- poverty is uh, driven by, and even this understanding of the self-made myth, is driven by the media? You were talking about how uh, people in the Republican Party really want to believe President Trump is a self-made man. He has said that he is a self-made man. How much of that self-made myth is driven by the way in which the, the media seems to celebrate that uh, self-made myth? Does the self uh, is that why we have this myth because of a media? Because when I turn when I watch local or even national news, you know, I, I tend to looking looking at people who are making six figures at least, and it's really hard to have them tell me what poverty is like when they seem incredibly rich themselves. So what role does the media play in allowing the self-made myth to continue? Well, this is a great question. So I should explain here to your listeners, you know, I run a nonprofit called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which I built up with the great late Barbara Ehrenreich. And Barbara started this organization and uh, more than a third of our contributors considered themselves working poor or working class, built this organization because she didn't think only the rich can afford to write about poverty, which I thought was a wonderful phrase, right? Like you look at some of your newspapers and you see people writing about deadbeat dads and they have, you know, summer houses in the Hamptons or I don't know what the equivalent of your area, your neck of the woods would be, uh, you know, in, um, in, Idaho or what have you, but, you know, they're, they're fancy people and they're writing in a very kind of otherized way about people who are at the lower end of the gradient. And I think part of the project is to try to get different voices into the media. I mean, that's what we're doing. Um, So, you know, we've seen a lot of local newspapers shut down. We've seen a, a lot of general, like look at BuzzFeed, a lot of publications shutting down and NPR cutbacks. And so we need more nonprofits, but we need them also um, including people who are not middle class or not wealthy, certainly, you know, and that means doing the kind of work that we're doing, which is recruiting people who have been on SNAP or have experienced homelessness or have uh, been evicted or have driven an Uber, you know. Do you think that that's the major change that has happened to journalism? Because I remember reading, I wasn't the biggest fan of Mike Royko. I thought the book Boss was a really good book. But he was talking about how when he started writing in the 30s and 1940s, that the vast majority of people who were working in the newsroom were working class people who came from a working class background. And then and media had the, the newspapers, the press had this idea of being a working class institution that was protecting the poor from whether it's corporate power or political power. Do you think that that's the major change that has happened? Along with corporatization and the Telecommunications Act of 1996, do you think the real change is that the body of the press is made up of no longer being made up of working class people? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would just say what working class people like. So they're white men, right? <laughs> like, so that would be yeah, that's a good itself. point too. Yeah, right. So like that's that was a bit of a, a red herring in some ways. Like, I, it's interesting though. I, there was a study done of the number of uh, people in the past in media who didn't have college degrees, and that's one measure, right? And there definitely there's almost no uh, people without college degrees in the media now, right? And you know, there's also uh, they had done a, a, a another study about the mastheads of uh, some some of the high you know highest brow uh, publications, and fifty percent of the people on the masthead had gone to like Ivy Plus universities, right? So it's not just universities; they've gone to really you know fine uh, fine uh, well financed schools, right? And so they're all from a certain network. So. That's not, I mean, look, I also went to those schools, I have to confess. So it's like, but there are people who can be from those schools who recognize it's a problem. And that's that's what we need to get to. We need to get to the producers and the people in um, the, you know, highest brow legacy publications recognizing that they need to have people who didn't go to college uh, or went to a community college also working in their newsrooms because otherwise, yeah, there is this alienation effect and vice versa, I think that if you employ people like we had um, one writer who uh, lives in rural Pennsylvania and she's written about how she didn't have a smartphone and editors expected her to have, download apps and she'd be like, I don't, I, or wouldn't even have adequate Wi-Fi because there was a digital divide in her area, you know? And I think having editors recognize those kind of obstacles and hire people like her can be very beneficial because when she writes, people write to her and they say, I've not seen anyone like you in the newspaper ever. Thank you. And that might make them more connected to the newspaper. I mean, there's hope There's hope for that, that they don't just feel like, oh, I only, I'm working poor or um, you know, financially stressed and my family and people like me only exist in the paper and the crime blotter. You know, we're only criminalized. We don't come in as writers or photographers, you know. You mentioned that uh, when there are those people who look down upon the poor, you write, they sneer, didn't they choose to send their children to college, perhaps taking educational, taking on educational debt? And why had they chosen to have children in the first place? And how dare they own a modular couch or a flat screen TV? I've come to realize, you write, that these sentiments don't run contrary to the American dream. Instead, they express the dream at its worst. Now, there are many definitions for the American dream. However, they nearly all have some form of equality, anything and everything being equally available to any American, equal access to opportunity for all, upward mobility is possible for everyone regardless of where they were from, what class they were born into, their race, religion, or gender, that we are all equally given the same opportunities for whatever we individually consider success. Is this sentiment denialism about the inequalities that do arise and exist in the United States? That while our founding documents may say we are all created equal, that the United States has never been equal. Is this an expression by some of a kind of patriotism for the American dream when they are in denial about the effects and impact of poverty. But I think, again, it's a misunderstanding of the American dream. And that's like in the way that bootstrapping was misunderstood or the original mis American dream, as it was coined in 1931, was our American dream. It wasn't my American dream. 
But like these other terms, it's morphed. Uh, and maybe it was a media amplification or as politicians talking like Hoover, talking about rugged individualism or, you know, it was like that kind of amplification in the wrong direction. But whatever the case may be, it has become this very punishing, siloed, individualistic thing. The American dream is something that you strive for, getting those two cars and that house and, you know, that paycheck that's higher than your neighbors, right? And blaming people who haven't gotten those things. So. I mean, I guess I see this book a little bit. I, I said it's liberating from, but it's also rescuing in a way because I feel like rescuing the American dream from what it's become, you know, which is this, uh, you know, conspicuous consumption and um, doing everything on your own and being cut off from the people close at hand. So I think I'm trying to, at least at the last third of the book, to point to new new forms of patriotism, new forms of togetherness that we could all be part of right now and we could all be fighting for. Some may argue that you, t you talk about bullying and shaming of the poor and you call this idea that poor people are the cause of their own poverty and nothing else is a toxic ideology. It's a prime example of how our country's most unprotected, its poor citizens are routinely and publicly shamed, a kind of nationwide bullying. So you have worked with people who are in poverty. Some may argue that the reason that they shame and bully the poor is because they're performing some kind of tough love and attempt at motivating people i know to do better for themselves by themselves how effective is shaming and bullying in motivating others to change their behavior for the better not not at all i mean tough love has been shown to not work for people experiencing you know substance use disorders it's not it doesn't work for people who are psychologically troubled for troubled teenagers you know none of this works the tough love approach and I, I feel like that it, it itself is sort of offensive and it's offensive in the media too. I mean, I, we have writers who are lower income who've described editors bullying them into, you know, performing better when the person is writing about their own homelessness. <laughs> and you're like, this is not a good look. Like let's stop, you know, this tough love old boys network attitude in our newsrooms. I mean, there's, I don't think there's that much of it left, but there's some, you know, and I, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I love that you see it as tough as like a part of the tough love ideology. I mean, the same I write about the side hustles and the sort of um, prof, uh, you know, proliferation of side hustles, which are these side jobs that everyone has to work now because their one job doesn't make enough. And then side hustle is a way to make it sound more glamorous and fun. Like, oh, I'm I'm hustling. I'm, you know, driving my Uber to uh, my job selling CBD. And then I have my main job during the day and like as an assistant in an accounting firm or whatever. And so that, that there's even, there's ads like that for uh, Uber about side hustles. And so there, there, where I'm going with this is that that's um, also expected now as, as part of this tough love, like you're supposed to have all these different jobs, you know, you go on TikTok and there's, you know, I don't know, thousands, more than thousands of uh, grind set, rise and grind videos telling, you know, like, come on, this is how you do it. Like Tim Ferriss kind of stuff. Like, you know, in 10 days, you'll have a new job if you just, you know, do these exercises and, and write this, your resume like this. And that's part of this tough love notion as well. And I think it leads to 
self-punishment, exploitation, um, and more inequity, honestly. And with these uh, side hustles, uh, it's always, I mean, if you have a driver's license, then you should be working because Uber doesn't need an application, you know, Airbnb or whatever, whatever it happens to be, Uber Eats or uh, Grubhub or whatever. They don't need any kind of application. Anybody could, if you have a driver's license, you're insured, you can go have this job. So what is the relationship, do you think, between the self-made myth and this side hustle, this life of precarity? Does the self-made myth fuel the precarious life that we now have with side hustles and with these apps? Yeah, I mean, I think it really does because I think if you keep thinking that you have to do this alone and you can do this alone, and that is the way that Elon Musk and Donald Trump have, you know, have done it, even though we all know that they were born on third base and, you know, whatever their fathers were property developers or what have you, you know. Um, But if you think that that's the way that people make it and then you're somehow not making it, you'll do anything to catch up. And then it encourages people to just sacrifice their bodies and minds for to this aim without realizing that it's kind of rigged against them. You also write that, uh, well, first of all, we are speaking with Alyssa Court. She is author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. She is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. You can follow the project on Twitter at Econ Hardship and find out more about them at economichardship.org. You write that those left out of the feeding frenzy of self-betterism fault themselves. According to a 2015 Oxford University and Joseph Roundtree Foundation study, poor people tend to experience a negative self-stereotyping effect, absorbing the media cliches and considering themselves low in competence and even flawed at the root. So while people's choices are not what guides everybody's outcome in their life, that's not the only outcome. There can be, obviously, systemic problems that affect somebody's life. Should poverty be thought of as a mental health concern that can lead to making poor decisions? Are the poor decisions that some who are impoverished might be making, is it due to poverty? Yeah, I mean, I think that wouldn't it be nice if there was a a DSM five or six category for what poverty does to your brain? Because I mean, one thing I've noted in people that I've reported on, and so I've written now two books that have to do with people who are impoverished as well, so as well as running this, but that you kind of, your judgment gets impaired if you're constantly trying to, um, you know, pay your bills, you know, help your child who's disabled, or send money back to your kid overseas if you're, you know, a low-income worker who's come here to try to, you know, make a better future for your kid, but you can't afford to have them with you, and you just stop. Your judgment is not operating at at, at its optimum. Op, at it, your judgment's not working at its best. And so you're sort of doing all kinds of things. You may be drinking too much. You may be uh, paying your bills uh, immediately or, uh, or you know, uh, putting them off, putting things on credit cards. You might be, um, you know, behind on your rent. Like you're not necessarily a rational actor because you're so stressed. And I think that's part of what I saw in both of my books and reporting this and what I see in our contributors 
that if you're in that kind of shape, you're just do you're just acting in terror and trauma and not necessarily planning for the future or even planning in the immediate future, like the week ahead of you. You're just trying to get by. And I feel like that's part of a trauma-informed approach to thinking about inequality, which is not just, you know, that it's an amount of numbers, like economists showing you graphs, a Gini coefficient or whatever, but it's also what these things do to actual people's inner lives and how they operate. You mentioned something I found really fascinating. You write what Lauren Berlant of the University of Chicago, a cultural theorist, calls cruel optimism, where your own desire prevents you from thriving. In other words, our country's ideal of happiness is a fantastic and impossible pursuit and one full of stress. It is bad for us, a veritable deadly nightshade. How can our own desire prevent us from thriving? Because you would think that that's all we're supposed to do. Do what you love and the money will follow, right? So how can our own desire prevent us from thriving? Well, I think it's it's because we have this desire and then we'll take on these jobs, like the side hustle jobs, or we'll punish ourselves constantly for not accomplishing what we think is the way of being a, a good American in a way. And in that way, not experiencing our daily lives or not um, connecting to our neighbors and the people in our communities in the ways that may really help us because we, we still believe that we could just do it on our own. And one of the things I've seen is this uh, kind of amplitude that opens up when people are working together. And I know it sounds like woo-woo corny stuff, but really like workers cooperatives or mutual aids or participatory budgeting groups where you know citizens get together and look at their local government's budgets. And sometimes that can be millions of dollars that citizens are now engaged with figuring out where it goes in their neighborhoods. And I just think something beautiful happens. And that's like the American dream we should be chasing and get out of this box that's of punishment and blame. And you mentioned how, you know, the, the pandemic revealed to all of us, you know, who were suddenly essential employees, people who were essential to our very survival from before the pandemic but then, you know, we didn't recognize them at that time, at that at that time. But during the pandemic, at the, in the earliest stages of it, we started recognizing this. Some were even rewarded, at least temporarily. Do you think we're right back where we started pre-pandemic when mutual aid had not yet expanded and workers were not seen as essential? Has there been a rush back to a pre-pandemic normal that was not normal at all? Absolutely. And I, I mean... I've seen the hazard pay clawed back, right? That that was something that a lot of um, uh, gig workers, you know, especially gig workers that were uh, dealing directly with the public, right? They got hazard pay. They were called essential workers, frontline workers. And there was suddenly, I mean, I knew it was uh, Chimera. It would be like just a short period of this kind of uh, applause at seven o'clock or whatever. But, you know, that is gone now. They're back to being called unskilled workers sometimes, you know, and I, again, I, I don't like the word unskilled. I want that put to rest. Everybody's skilled. If you make a pizza, you're skilled. I mean, I can't make a pizza. Well, <laughs> actually I've learned how to make a pizza. Well, it took me a while, but you know, I think we need to use different language and we need to honor workers in the same way that we did when we were uh, during the pandemic and not just at <laughs> a display and a disaster, but in, as a continuing practice of mutual respect 
I personally am not totally sure how to keep that alive, except to not buy into this pandemic amnesia, like this for, you know, willful forgetting, because I think it's dangerous. We did learn stuff from it. And, you know, what point is historical trauma if not to have, you know, post-traumatic growth? How can the idea of bootstrapping within ourselves, how can we overcome that when we live in a system that is increasingly dependent on bootstrapping, when we have more of a gig economy, more of a side hustle economy? How can the idea of bootstrapping be overcome when bootstrapping seems to be more at the heart of our economy every day? Well, I sort of write about ways that we can personally do this for ourselves. And so one way to do that is to talk about attribution and um, rather than gratitude. Uh, I, I'm talking about looking more for giving people credit in our immediate community rather than just saying you're grateful. Because if you're grateful, you're grateful to who? You're grateful to yourself, your God. What are you grateful to? But if you're giving credit, it's to an actual other human being or it could be to you know the clean water in your your town or whatever, but um, I think that's a mindset shift that has to happen. And then I also think we need to be voting differently. And this is one of the ways that we get out of this bootstrap story is by disputing the claims of being self-made, disputing the value of that story, and electing people who dispute the value of that story. And I'm thinking of Maxwell Alejandro Frost was elected from Florida as a representative and he was 26 years old. And he said publicly, I'm not going to be able to rent an apartment in DC because my salary hasn't kicked in yet. And I don't have, you know, I have student debt or whatever. I can't do this. And then was attacked by Republicans who said, oh, he's, you know, ha ha, he's living with friends. He's a, you know, moocher, whatever, surf, couch surfing moocher. And then he said, I'm not buying into this bootstrap story. I don't have the startup capital to just start renting an expensive apartment in DC. And I thought that was just amazing and brave. And the beginning of getting out of this story is you have major figures saying, you know, I'm not wealthy and I'm and I'm not gonna claim to be bootstrapping my way into this this world. I'm gonna tell you how I did it. I did it with the help of other people. And it's weird, it's ironic that they want him to live outside of his means which is a way in which you get into poverty. It just doesn't seem, it seems always very contradictory in all of this logic. You write the pandemic acted like a proverbial x-ray machine, exposing how self-defeating our isolation from one another can be. And you'd like to have a curriculum of, instead of celebrating the individual, you'd like to have, see a curriculum of interdependence. Considering what we are seeing in many U.S. schools, history books being taken off library shelves, censoring of lesson plans, the far right working to ban any educational material or curriculum from mentioning anything they consider critical of the United States, would teaching interdependence, do you think that would face same kind of flow, uh, fi uh, blowback? Would uh, teamwork be attacked for being leftist, maybe socialist, communist, or even un-American? Well, that's a really interesting um, conceit because one of the things about this book is I revisited some of the curriculum of my youth, you know, things like Thoreau and Emerson, you know, Walden, the Oh Man Alone discourse, right? Or Anne Rand or um, or to the opposite, Darwin, who is seen as survival of the fittest and is sort of appropriated by libertarians, but wrote a lot about mutual sympathy and 
could be considered to be uh, one of the fathers of mutual aid. You know, the person who actually came up with the concept of mutual aid, the Russian, uh, the Russian thinker, uh, uh, Peter Kropotkin, was influenced by Darwin. So I think, you know, we could also have a curriculum that would show some of those connections that are hidden. Would it be opposed? I don't know, probably. I, I mean, I like the discourse of saying teamwork because that's a very kind of um, company uh, uh, corporate framework right now, right? My team, how's my team doing? Like maybe if we put this curriculum in those terms, it would, it would go over okay. Just two more questions for you. You write that uh, turning what should be casual hobbies into severe pastimes has long been one of the ways I've been guilty of self-punishing, a version of the insistence that we succeed on our own. So is bootstrapping a kind of self-punishment and an expected response to a crisis like a pandemic? Is bootstrapping how we were taught to respond to everything? If the economy collapses, then just start learning how to make sourdough bread. Is that how we're supposed to react to things? Yeah, I think that is how we're supposed to react. And I've certainly had my share of that. And I wanted to hop to that because I, as I said, like there is a very pure version of bootstrapping that's like you have to do this, you have to become, you know, wildly economically successful on your own and you need to have this life that's picture perfect. But there's other kinds too, which is, yeah, like I'm just gonna, you know. In my case, you know, I'm going to work myself uh, very hard to try to achieve solidarity, right? So it's like it look on the face, it looks like, oh, it's actually about something else, but it has some of the same elements that like I've never done enough or there's like that kind of self-punishing aspect to it and not necessarily bringing enough people in to, to assist us. So I, the thing I came up with to help myself with this was something called the art of dependence. And what I mean by that is that being dependent on others and asking for help is a skill and a craft and a kind of grace. And that if we could talk about that, uh, our dependence as something to sometimes aspire to, that would be productive. And that's part of what I've been trying to do with myself, like kind of as a mantra, you know, I, it's okay to be dependent. It's more than okay. It's uh, something of value to learn how to depend on others. And recognizing that and recognizing that the self-made myth is just that it's a myth, I think also does a good job in recognizing our white privilege as well, because I think there's a lot of white privilege baked into that self-made myth. One last question for you, Alyssa. We have been speaking with Alyssa Court, author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. For every one of our guests, we do this. We ask the, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. One of the things that has been really kind of just gnawing at me is how many people think of, when they think of mutual aid, they think of this as a left-wing activism. And then you see during a pandemic, I get a newspaper from a very small town that's in the heart of Trump country, very far right-wing. They had torches and pitchfork rallies at night against Antifa uh, armies that were supposedly coming to town that were not coming to town whatsoever. Yet they have this amazing community response, community support. They gave out free meals during the pandemic. They gave out aid to people in the area during the pandemic. They voted down a millage, but then they were willing to provide aid. They might be against socialism of any form, and might not want to say that what they're you know participating in is mutual aid, but essentially that is what they're doing, what they are doing. Is there a contradiction 
between people who are anti-socialist and then turn around and do everything they can to give back to their community during a time of crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that was interesting was the people I spoke to who were religious were not actually, uh, didn't think of themselves as individuals quite to the extent, truly religious, not just like prosperity gospel, but were part of these religious communities. The problem was not individualism, it was the absence of individualism, that they were sort of the community came first. And I wanted to stay open and be like, okay, what can we learn from some of these more conservative religious communities that might actually get it right about uh, mutual aid and so forth, but but have the raw, you know, come to the wrong lessons about what policy or what uh, frameworks we should be thinking about our country through, right? They, it could be, oh, we're, we're taking care of our, our, our people because of God, not because it's uh, the ethically and politically right thing to do, but it leads to some of, some of the things that I'm, I'm hoping for, this kind of openness to interdependence and dependence. So that was interesting for me and it was something I wanted to stay open to. And I do think that there are a lot of uh, community efforts in conservative communities, red state communities, that have been, um, yeah, very productive. I don't know if they understand that there are limits to this kind of voluntarism. And that's something that I write about in my book too. Like I, yes, I love mutual aids. I'm writing about how, what a beacon they were, uh, but also that there's something I call the dystopian social safety net, which is all these things that exist that shouldn't have to exist, but we're glad they do. And these include nonprofits and volunteer groups and people crowdfunding for their medical health, that to have the both and where you could have that kind of volunteerism and adequate social support, that's where some of these right-wing mutual aids might go wrong, right? They just would stop it. Let's just have this food giveaway. And they wouldn't say, let's have better, you know, whatever, better school lunch in our schools. Like they'd be open to giving the school lunch once, but not consistently. So I think that that is the thing that we have to look for. Like, how do we teach people that it's the same thing just on a grander scale to give adequate school lunch on a regular basis? And we just can't depend upon uh, private philanthropy to be as effective or as efficient in giving the aid to people that they need that, you know, unfortunately, a government can do a lot better. Alyssa, thank you so much for being on our show. Alyssa Court is author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Again, you can find out about the Economic Hardship Reporting Project uh, on Twitter at EconHardship, or you can go to find them online at economichardship.org. And you can find out more about Alyssa at her own website, alyssacourt.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. This, okay. I will take care. I will do that. You are here and this is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Again, you can tell this is not the corporate establishment media because they would never suggest that lifting ourselves up by our food tra- food straps is an absurdity, as Alyssa Court just did, or that individualism that we embrace is actually self-destructive and fuels inequality, paranoia, and fear. If what Alyssa said on today's show reminded you that, yes, this is hell, and there's actually something we can do about it, 
show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which will stream all the time now on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. That's going to be our regular place. Patreon.com slash this is hell Thursday morning, 10 a.m., no matter what, hell or high water. Or you can just show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Last Thursday was April 20th, as in 420, the day connoisseurs of marijuana celebrate herb. So, at 4.20 p.m. on 4.20, we posted a Patreon podcast that was about, you guessed it, 4.20. My monologue included a brief history of 4.20, what many who recognize the holiday wanted but should have been careful of what they wished for, and I considered the most un-4.20 thing imaginable. Do I suffer from... Cannabis Use Disorder. Am I a weed addict? We also shared an interview, which was, of course, about pot, an interview from January 31st, 2009, when we spoke with Paul Armentano, who at the time was the deputy director of Normal and the Normal Foundation and is now a professor at Oaksterdam University, which will probably make some of you laugh who know what Oaksterdam University is. Paul had just written the story, Marijuana Reform is Part of the Progressive Agenda. So why are Obama's drug cops already making pot raids? Which is important to remember. Barack Obama unleashed the DEA, federal agents, on citizens of states that had voted in support of medical marijuana as marijuana was and still is illegal at the federal level. No ATF agents are not kicking down people's doors and taking their guns away. But Barack Obama was sending in DEA agents in states where they had voted for medical marijuana, and he was taking their weed away. That's right, Barack Obama was not as chill as the media would like you to believe. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do... You get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And as a new feature, we are allowing our Patreon patrons to ask me a prior to completely undisclosed question from hell. Speaking of Patreon... As I said before, we spoke with Alyssa. We got an email from someone who has the first name of, as our same first name as our producer, Will Ippen. Somebody named Will. They write, I think you, your totally justified guilt trip during a couple of recent episodes worked. New Patreon subscriptions and pledge increases seemed to be stagnant for a while, but a flurry of activity following your statement that subscriptions plummeted when you were in the hospital and that the show has yet to recover from that, that approach seems to be working. You should harvest those guilty consciences. Again, that's from someone named Will. I apologize to anyone I made feel guilty by saying that we lost something like one in eight supporters on Patreon, while for more than two weeks last year, I was fighting for my life in the hospital and given a 60-40 chance of survival, leading to nearly three months of recuperation again. My apologies if that caused anyone a feeling of guilt, unless, of course, it actually worked in getting you to become a subscriber 
at patreon.com slash this is hell. If that's the case, whatevs. Will, and I'm certain you are not the Will who sent me that email, but if you are, keep it up, Will. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? That email writer made me uh, look up the word pathos. I forgot uh, what yeah. it meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, man, Patreon has been uh, very active about this Buzzing. question. Yes. Um, Edson C. says, too easy. Elon Musk exploding, of course. <laughs> Other than the obvious, though... Um, Electoral disaster for any of the neoliberal parties around the world. I don't feel that. That sounds good. Andrew J. says a happier disaster than Elon Musk's rocket failing. (laughs) Uh, The destruction of all humanity and nuclear fire. Wow. He's in wow. Um, Old Grouch says a natural disaster. Seems we have one on its way, but it ain't natural. Mother Nature is about to teach us what happens when you spit in her sink. In 2030, we are all at irreversible climate change. So on January 1st, 2023, take all the sharp objects out of your pockets, bend over, put your head between your legs, and kiss your behind goodbye. <laughs> um, oh, that's a cheery, <laughs> that's a uh, cheery message. Yeah. Uh, NYC M and A-hole says... If it had been crewed by the Supreme Court. <laughs> wow. Wow. That would have been great. Sarah Free, free Elon <laughs> Musk rocket rides for the Supreme Court. Right. I'd like to watch them try sure. to start the thing up, too. Yeah. Especially wearing those robes. It would be difficult. Oh, um, I bet those are very flammable robes. <laughs> yes, um, Let's find out. <laughs> Sarah S. says, George W. Bush at The Hague, to which NYC M&A hole replies, don't forget Cheney. All right. Uh, old friend of the show, Jeff Dorchin, says Elon Musk's uh, dick exploding from dick enlargement technology he made his underlings come up with. Next to that, an outbreak of Ebola that only affects wealth holders, hoarders, and people who say nuclear. <laughs> wow. Oh, Jeffy. Yikey. Um, Yairo M. says... Elon's employees all unionize. He loses the lawsuits his creditors filed against him, and he gets spanked by Mummy. And there's a link there. No, oh, really? From MummySpanking.com. Mummy really? spanking. That was <laughs> Who not knew? expected. Uh, Andrew says, Mystery Kush. <laughs> okay. And then um, one last one. Peter Jones says, Chuck becoming a promising chocolatier, only to name his irresistible and addictive treats, Mertzy Squirts. <laughs> Disgusting. The the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from how it wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. And Will will be telling us what Jeff's Moment of Truth is about after Sebastian. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. And now, the past... Inside the Present with Dr. Sebastian Vopper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. 
the past inside the present. So, uh, just a weird thing, uh, just a, a thing at the present, inside the present, that because news just broke that Tucker Carlson is out at Fox, which is kind of funny. Um, I just thought I mentioned this. Uh, completely unrelated to today's topic. Wow. Um, well, today, so that just happened? So he did he quit or did they fire him? I, I think they fired him, like, from, because he does not get, like, a final good, goodbye segment or anything. He's just out. So, likely on the heels of the dominion uh lawsuit that happened last week it's crazy um, so now i have to watch oan <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen with him but um knowing him he will likely fail upwards yeah the bow tie will come back that's what i'm <laughs> suggesting that is what's going to happen oh yeah. yeah anyway um so the abortion pill ban uh speaking of lawsuits the abortion bill pill abortion pill ban has been narrowly averted thanks to the Supreme Court of the United States not playing ball to outlaw all abortion, privacy, and bodily autonomy rights in one fell swoop like many suspected them to. Looks like they're rather choosing to slow walk the nation into the handmaid's, handmaid's tale uh, than doing the whole thing overnight, which probably a smart move in the whole frog boiled and slowly heated water kind of way. If you haven't been paying attention, good for you, king, queen, Way to go and not paying attention to the news and living your best life without the constant hum of the various sorts of Democles that are hanging over our society at any given moment. What's that like? Anyway, what happened to... What happened to... I'm, I'm sorry, I my cat is trying to steal food. Um, it's like several things happening at once here. <laughs> Buddy, no. Um... Anyway, what happened was that a Trump-appointed federal judge from Texas decided a couple of weeks ago that the FDA had done a big whoopsie when they declared the abortion pill uh, mifepristone was safe for use and could be mailed around the country. In uh, And let me check my notes here. Um, uh, yeah, 20 years ago. So this drug has been used for various things including inducing abortions since 2003. It's been found to be very safe, safer than Tylenol, um, which isn't really saying much because really nobody should be taking acetaminophen, which is really surprisingly awful over the counter painkiller, but I'm getting off track here. Point being is that this abortion medication was a very safe drug that over the past 20 years has proven itself to be, well, that a very safe drug in a nutshell the reasoning this judge used in his verdict on a case where a bunch of wackadoodle conservative doctors sued was that using the postal service to ship abortion pills was furthering vice in the nation you know because these anti-abortion friends uh, and i was told to revise the word i wanted to use here originally uh, these anti-abortion friends always say that having access to abortions means everyone just has unprotected se unprotected sex left and right uh you know lions lying with lambs no consequences for anyone and also it's then the poor unborn pardon me pre-born children that suffer for their parents sexual misadventures by being then murdered in the womb it, and anyway in the ruling the judge essentially revived a set of federal laws that are collectively known as the comstock act or the comstock laws and that's what i want to talk about today um this would have been a bit more impactful if scotus hadn't done this ruling on friday um where they disagreed with the judge and said, no, it's fine, actually. Uh, but the Supreme Court does not listen to me when I tell them to do this after I do my segment, and I don't think they've even listened to any of the 60 voicemails I left them. Uh, but anyway, so what is the Comstock Act? 
I briefly mentioned it in a previous segment last year, but I thought since this law that was enacted in 1873, you heard that right, is now in 2023 rearing its heading in, it might be time for a refresher. In 1872, federal marshals arrested suffragette leader and journalist Victoria Woodhull. Uh, the charges brought against Woodhull were that she had been using the Postal Service to transport obscene literature, which had been outlawed during the Civil War to protect soldiers from smut. And I'm sure these soldiers were very happy that they were protected from smut. Uh, Woodhull's crime had been that she uh, had sent her newspaper, which contained a detailed report on the adultery of nationally renowned minister Henry Ward Beecher, brother of Uncle Tom's cabin author Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, through the mail. Beecher had been canoodling and more with suffragette Elizabeth Richards Tilton um, while he himself was condemning sex outside the marriage. Woodhull focused on the story to highlight Beecher's hypocrisy, but she had been entrapped by New York moral crusader Anthony Comstock, the anti-hero of today's piece. Comstock had anonymously asked Woodhull for a copy of her newspaper, which she mailed to him, and this then served as grounds for her arrest. However, the existing Civil War-era law was not going far enough to actually convict her, so the charges against her, her husband, and her sister were eventually dropped. Comstock, however, was only getting started. So who was this guy, and what was his deal? Anthony Comstock had, like so many of his contemporaries, served in the Civil War. In 1869, he came to he came to New York, where he worked as a shipping clerk and then joined the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association of um, Village People fame. Only not at that time because the middle village people hadn't been born yet. In his marriage, he was generally a good husband. He seems to be like a like on a personal level, kind of a decent guy. He was not beneath helping his wife in the household, engaging in behavior that today's real men would consider far beneath them, like cooking and suing himself. He had been religiously socialized in New England, being a native from Connecticut. He was from Connecticut. Uh, he took his religion very seriously, to the point where he complained to police force um, about liquor stores, that were not closed on Sunday and uh, then reported the officers who did not see that as an issue worth responding to themselves, to their superiors. After leading a little crusade against uh, saloon keepers who refused to observe the Christian Sabbath, his next goal was obscene literature. A close friend of his had reportedly died of quote-unquote corruption and disease, which in 19th century parlance could mean either of syphilis or of nervous diseases that at the time were understood as being brought on by the vice of masturbation. Comstock blamed lewd literature in any in, in any case. Excuse me, gotta get my cat off of my back. Dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um sitting on my shoulders. Yeah, next time I really should close the door. <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, uh, Comstock blamed lewd literature in any case uh, for the death of his friend. He partnered with police and went around town in New York to find purveyors of erotic literature to have them arrested. The same vendors who offered this sort of literature also offered quote-unquote marriage guides and physical contraceptives as well as abortion medications. These were the men that Comstock now went after. He engaged in private con uh, concerned citizen detective work, helped police find offenders against New York State's obscenity law, and served as a prosecution witness in the ensuing trials. 
Comstock, however, began to aim higher. After pursuing several vendors of what he considered smut, Comstock eventually began hounding the publishers and producers of that kind of material. He spent all of his money in on his obscenity-fighting crusade. Eventually, he was broke and asked the YMCA for material support, and uh, the association obliged. In 1872, uh, the New York YMCA created the Committee for the Suppression of Vice um, with Anthony Comstock as first secretary, and that was a paid position so he could quit his shipping clerk uh, job that, that he had spent all the money that he got from that job on, on that stuff anyway. Uh, and in this new position, Comstock went after printers and publishers of obscene literature, but also after large distributors of contraceptives, abortives, and masturbation materials such as dildos. Uh, and when later in the year, the whole Beecher scandal broke, Comstock smelled a good opportunity to bolster his own standing in American society by defending a, such a well-known figure and by bringing, bringing down the person who smeared him in her newspaper. When the court dismissed the case uh, in 1873 because the New York obscenity law did not cover newspapers, Comstock was not terribly dist distraught. Instead, he went on a campaign to lobby Congress, so United States Congress, to enact a federal law to criminalize the transport of obscene materials through the mail. He also lobbied for the definition of obscene materials to include literature explaining sexuality, concept, contraceptive methods, such uh, as well as guides to abortions. Uh, but also contraceptive materials such as condoms, um, as well as masturbation aids, as and also uh, advertising. Any and all advertising for such materials would be covered under obscene literature under this obscenity law. Uh, Comstock here worked together with a couple of people on the federal level to not just lobby Congress, but to essentially write the law um, and include in this law a provision that created the position of an overseer with the post office responsible for checking the distribution of obscene material. And that Comstock would be the only candidate for such an office was clear to the drafters of the law. And uh, yeah, this law was then snuck into an appropriations bill and passed into law or was passed into law by uh, President Grant in uh, March of 1873. Comstock would then serve as special agent to the United States Postmaster General until his death in 1915, persecuting and prosecuting, confiscating and arresting the purveyors of whatever he deemed obscene. Parts of the Comstock Act have since been deemed unconstitutional. Uh, some Supreme Court cases rolled back aspects of the Comstock Law, such as Griswold v. Connecticut and um, Eisenstedt v. Beard, uh, Baird in 18, uh, 1965 and 1972, respectively. The Comstock Act, however, is still on the books. It just mostly goes unenforced. So it appears that there is a loaded gun just lying around that could be used by any activist judges to kneecap basically anything related to abortion or basically any kind of sexuality or sexual expression. Um, in terms of pornography, there is the so-called Miller test, which followed out of the 1973 Supreme Court case, Miller v. California, which says that anything that fulfills the three criteria of being A, offensive to an average person, B, that it's patently offensive, uh, sexually offensive, and C, lacks literally artistic, scientific, or political value is deemed officially obscene and therefore not protected by the First Amendment. Just because, I, I just looked this up because I was like, okay, so uh, we can't mail pornography, but I'm pretty sure you can, like, why is that? Why is that uh, not not a thing? If the Comstock laws uh, are still laws, are still in the books. 
Um, so yeah, so it's it's odd, it's messy, it's complicated. The Comstock laws seem incompatible with modern society, yet they're still there and haven't been meaningfully dismantled. And with the Dobbs decision from last year, and with Griswold v. Connecticut now firmly in the aims of the current hyper-conservative Supreme Court, Anthony Comstock could indeed have a second coming. And we're still doing phrasing, apparently. Uh, that's just an obscene thought. Uh, for today's segment, I consulted the excellent 2002 book Rereading Sex by Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz, as well as the statement of law professor Frederick Schauer for the hearing on obscenity prosecution and the Constitution Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights and Property Rights Committee on the Judiciary from 2005. Uh, yeah, and that's it from me, from me for today. Thank you very much, Sebastian. The Comstock laws, that's pretty fascinating history. I always love reading about uh, what, how we determine what is obscene and even other uh, countries' laws. What's obscene here in the mm. United States is not necessarily obscene in the UK, and what's obscene in the UK is not necessarily obscene here in the United States. So I always find that kind of stuff interesting. So thank you very much, Sebastian. A yeah. great way to start the week. <laughs> always a pleasure. You are here, and this is Hal Will, who was our next guest here on This Is Hell. Our next guest is Simon Waxman, who wrote the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Simon has written for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Democracy Journal, and others. Yeah, and just as an aside, I found out after reading his entire article, writing the entire review, uh, he also happens to be the editor of Harvard University Press. That might have been... Oh. Something I should have mentioned there yeah. in his bio. I think that would have been handy. Uh, and who's our final guest this week? Uh, and our final guest is Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream World, the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn is the award-winning author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which has been translated into six languages. He is a professor of history at Wellesley College and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's the history of ideas. Did you yeah. ever hear that before? Uh, it's yeah, I've heard that. You know, it's kind of a, a, another way of saying uh, history, intellectual history, <laughs> oh, oh, but okay. a little more. I don't know, anthropological, I guess you could uh, say, also, more cultural. I got you. Also coming up uh, later this week, we will have this week in rotten history. We'll, we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell, and his podcast shortly after again. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. We'll also have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch and Will. What is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff, Jeff talks up the half-ass ethos. <laughs> okay. And we'll continue uh, with an, you know reading your answers to this week's question from hell. And uh, we'll announce this week's winner. And whoever it is gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merch for free. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcasting, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to Kat for sitting in for the second time. We are looking forward to her joining our staff soon. Most of all, thank you for listening. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>